You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We read together verses 5 through 9, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verse 5. For he did not subject the angels of the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, you left nothing that was not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray for you. Father, it's a joy that we are able even this morning after worshiping you with full hearts, a joy-filled hearts to be able to open your word and to hear the voice of our God in the pages of scripture. We thank you for an Old Testament that bears witness to the coming Messiah, and a New Testament that has recorded for us all that he said and did so that it is necessary for us to know him and to be saved. We thank you for this Son of Man who was made for a little while lower than the angels and the crown of glory. We pray that today, as a result of our study of your word, that we may see Christ with our eyes and our spirit, and that we may, with hearts filled with joy, be longing and willing and able to obey him in everything that he has commanded of us. We pray that you would encourage us and edify us today in your word, by your grace, and the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. And though this is our first Sunday in our new building, uh, we're just going to do what we have been doing all along, which is going through the book of Hebrews. For some of you, that might be something of a surprise because you expect something you do or unique. Others of you know me well enough to know that Jim's going to preach about death on Mother's Day. He's just going to continue preaching on whatever, whatever it is that he happens to be preaching through, even though we're in a new facility. And there are a large number of people that are here today. We're grateful that you're here. Some of you have come from a long ways to be with us because you've been part of our church in years past, and we're grateful to have you here. Others of you are here because you were part of the the graduation service on Friday night, and your family was not able to get rid of you, and it is pushing <laughs> So you're here in worship service with them. Whatever it is, we're grateful that you're here. We've been studying through the book of Hebrews, and we're in the second chapter. And I know that for many of you, this may seem like we're just jumping into the middle of a. We kind of bring everybody else up to speed, and I'll do this in a quick, I think, and timely fashion. One of the main themes that runs all the way through the book of Hebrews is the theme that Jesus is greater than. And throughout the book of Hebrews, the author makes the case that Jesus is greater than the angels, and that Jesus is greater than Moses, and he is greater than Aaron. He is greater than David, he is greater than the old covenant. The blood that he shed is greater than the blood of bulls and goats. The sacrifice that he offered is greater and better than all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The covenant that he has initiated and secured by his own blood is a better covenant than the old covenant. The priesthood that he fulfills is a better priesthood than the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood. And so that is how the argument of the book of Hebrews goes, as the author brings up one comparison after another. The comparison that we're looking at, that occupies chapter 1 and chapter 2, is the comparison between Jesus and the angels. 
At the beginning of the book, the author says in chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus has inherited a more excellent name than they. That's the conclusion of a series of seven statements that the author makes regarding Jesus Christ. He is the creator of all things. He is the heir of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the exact representation of the nature of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He has made purification of sins. And he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Those seven statements. And then the author in verses 5 through 14, for the rest of chapter 1, cites seven different passages from the Old Testament, all of them except for one of them come from the book of Psalms, in order to show that all of these magnificent statements that he has made about Jesus Christ are not, are not doctrines that were invented in the minds of a few fanatical followers out in the middle of the desert around the campfire scene. But these doctrines are, in fact, the very things that were revealed in the Old Testament that we should expect in the coming Messiah. We ought to expect one who was the divine son. We ought to expect one with divine characteristics. We should expect one who would come and, and take the throne of Israel. So all the way through chapter 1, verses 5 to 14, he makes the case from the Old Testament passages of Scripture. Then in chapter 2, the, the comparison is still the same thing. Jesus with the angels. But in chapter 2, he compares the punishment that would come under the Old Covenant, mediated by angels, for those who would disobey the word clearly revealed, it was a severe punishment, and it was a certain punishment. How much greater than is the punishment deserved by one who would ignore the revelation given to us in the Son? If the Son is greater than angels, and you were punished for denying or rejecting or neglecting the salvation that was announced for angels in the Old Covenant, how much greater will be your punishment? How will you escape if you neglect or deny the revelation of truth that is communicated to the Son? That's the comparison. Jesus is greater than the angels. His covenant, his offer of salvation is even greater and more clear and more certain even than what was revealed through ages. And then beginning in chapter 5, that brings us to the passage that we're looking at today. Beginning in chapter 5 through the rest of chapter 2, there are two objections that the author answers. And here's what we're going to do today. You will notice when we read verses 6 through 8 that that is a quotation from the Old Testament passage. That Old Testament passage is Psalm 8, which we read at the beginning of the, of the service today. So here's what we're going to do today. I want to kind of give you an overview of, of the rest of chapter 2 and show you that there are two objections to all of this that the author is dealing with. He's answering these two objections. And then we're going to turn back to Psalm 8. And we're going to look at Psalm 8 in order to set the context so that next week when we come in and jump back into verse 5, we'll understand what the passage is teaching here that the author is quoting from. So you're either going to get half the message or you can come back next week and get the rest of it. So that's what we're going to do. I want to show you, first of all, the two objections that the author is answering. Now, every good preacher or author or teacher should, should desire, should, should try his best to answer objections that might come up in the mind of his hero or his student. Now, I'm aware that as I stand up here on any given Sunday, right? Uh, present or, or writing an article or a book or something of that nature, that, that people who read what I write or people who listen to what is preached will not always agree with everything that I've said. And so in my mind, in my heart, as I'm preparing to preach here on a Sunday morning, I'm trying to anticipate what objections might come up. Somebody might say, well, what about, or if that's true, then how is it that? And I try to anticipate what those are and then answer them in the course of, of presenting the material. And the author of Hebrews is doing the exact same thing. There are some objections that would come up in the mind of the hearer, the mind of the listener that the author is now going to, in the rest of chapter 2, answer these two pertinent objections. Now, here are the two objections that he's going to deal with. The first one is this. Doesn't the incarnation demonstrate that Jesus was not greater than the angels? 
Now see, that's a good question to ask the elder. Doesn't the incarnation, doesn't the fact that he became a man demonstrate that he is lower than or lesser than the angels? Because man, as the text in verses 6 and 8 recognizes, man is created lower than the angels. We are a lower class of being than the angels are. Where, where the angels are greater in power, they're greater in glory, they're greater in intellect, they're greater in strength, they're greater in holiness, they're greater in, in all kinds of capacities than mankind is. We are a lower creation than the angelic hosts. So if man is lower than the angels, and Jesus became a man, doesn't that demonstrate that Jesus is lesser than the angels? You see the objection? It's a valid question, and it's a good question. And it's one that the author is going to deal with. In chapter 1, he has said, he is the first place, that this one, named Jesus of Nazareth, is the exact radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature. He is the one who has created everything. And he, even now, while you sit here, he holds it all together, keeps the world spinning, the universe in existence, simply by the word of his power. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, even today, in that position of glory of God. If that is true, don't we also say that Jesus was made a man, that he is the man Christ Jesus? Wasn't he born of a virgin? Did he have to learn to walk? Did he have to learn to talk? Learn to read? Learn the Old Testament scriptures? Wasn't he tempted all points out as we are? Didn't he have to experience the things that humanity experiences and, and the limitations of being a man? And then getting his feet dirty and getting his feet washed and cleaning under his fingernails and cutting his fingernails and, and all of the things that we experience and learn that he have to, didn't he have to learn all of those. And if he did, if he was made a man, he was genuinely a man, and man is lower than the angels, how can we say then that he is the exalted son, that he is glorious, that he is God himself? It's a good objection. And so that is what is dealt with actually in verses 5 through verse 9. And we'll see, I just want you to see in verse 9, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So he's made for a little while lower than the angels. There's a temporary station that he took without forfeiting the nature of his deity, without forfeiting the, the, the reality of his divinity, he was for a period of time made in station and made an appearance as a man and took upon himself humanity for a little while lower than the angels. But he's been crowned with glory and honor. So the author is dealing with that objection. No, the incarnation does not demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth was lesser than the angels were inferior to the angels. The second objection is similar. Doesn't the death of Jesus demonstrate that he was less than the angels? Now that's a good objection. Angels don't die. Angels are not subject to mortality. Angels don't suffer affliction and pain and anguish and go through all that and then, and then die and be buried. Angels don't suffer that. Angels are higher than men. Men are subject, men are mortal and subject to death. And if Jesus died, doesn't that demonstrate, does death demonstrate that he is lesser than the angels? Of course, the answer to that is no. And that's what the author deals with beginning in verse 10 and all the way through the rest of chapter 2, look at verse 10. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the honor of their salvation through sufferings. Verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There is a purpose in the incarnation, and there is a purpose in the sufferings of Christ, 
that make him demonstrate that he is greater than the angels. In other words, he was made for a little while lower than the angels, but that doesn't demonstrate that he is lesser than them. And his suffering does not demonstrate that he is less than the angels, because through his incarnation and through his suffering, he accomplished something that was necessary, and he accomplished something that demonstrates, again, that he is greater than the angels. In other words, the nature of the incarnation and the nature of his sufferings accomplished something that can only be accomplished by one who is greater than the angels. So those are the two objections that are handled. And then the second thing we want to do is deal with the uh, book of Psalms, chapter 8. So I want you to turn back to Psalm 8. Because this is the passage that is, is dealt with in verses 6 to 8. We're going to set a little bit of the context and the background here from Psalm 8. And then next week we'll jump in at verse 5 and see how it is that the author deals with that objection. Doesn't the incarnation of Jesus demonstrate that he was less than the angels? So the rest of our time here is going to be spent with sort of an overview of Psalm 8, Hebrews chapter 2, but I forgot, was how the author introduces Psalm 8. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, hasn't someone said somewhere? Did you catch that in verse 6 before he cites the psalm? This is it. As someone has said somewhere, and you kind of wonder if it did he forget who he was quoting and where he was turning? What was going on there with that citation? It's a very common way in ancient times for people to make citations. And it's in fact the way that the author of Hebrews typically cites scripture all the way through the book of Hebrews. And if you've been with us and you are familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know that this book is loaded with all those Old Testament citations and references, right? And even allusions to the Old Testament. It is an exposition of the book of Leviticus and Psalm 110, all kind of wrapped in the one. So it's very Old Testament passage heavy. And yet, the Psalms, as far as I can find, there's not once, or sorry, the author of Hebrews, there's not once in all the book of Hebrews where he cites the human author. Instead, he thinks, says things like, as God has said, or as the Holy Spirit has said, it is as if he ignores the human author entirely. Not that he didn't believe there was a human author, but it is as if he is intending to demonstrate to us and to remind us, this is the testimony of God himself concerning himself. So there's an emphasis there, even in how he cites the Old Testament passage. Alright, so we're in Psalm 8, and though the author of Hebrews says, as someone has said somewhere, we know it's Psalm 8, and we know who said it. From the prelude to the psalm, we find out that this is a psalm of David. Psalm 8, and let's just read, I want you to look at verse 1 and verse 9, and they are very similar. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice that the psalm begins and ends with the same declaration of the majesty of God. It's kind of like a majesty sandwich. Right? On the top is this declaration, the majesty of God. At the bottom, at the end of the psalm, is this declaration of the majesty of God that is displayed throughout the whole earth. And then in the middle is a demonstration or a display of the majesty of God. So he begins with this declaration. God is majestic, and his name is majestic in all of the earth. And then he gives us all of the reasons, both big and small, why God is to be praised, why he is majestic. And then the psalm ends with another declaration as to the majesty of God. So we have in verses 1 and 9 the majesty of God declared, and then we have in verses 2 through 8 the majesty of God displayed. What is it that displays God's majesty? The word majesty suggests a splendor or magnificent. And notice that it is the name of God that is, is called or titled majestic here. How majestic is your name? How magnificent and splendorous is the name of God? The name of God was sort of a way of referring to majestic. He is, he is to be praised and he is to be lauded because he is, he is full of splendor and glory. And his name is majestic throughout all of the earth. 
Everywhere we turn, everything we see, we see in it the handiwork of God. All of creation displays the glory and the majesty of God. Now, atheists will look at creation and say, well, I really don't see the majesty or the glory of God. That's because you're blind. You're an atheist. Because you do not have eyes to see. As a Christian, I look out at creation and I see the splendor of God in everything, constantly. So if you're an atheist, all you see is the random collision of all of this. But I don't expect an atheist to see the hand of God in all of creation. Any more than I expect someone who is physically blind to be able to describe to me the majesty of a waterfall or a sunset or what the pattern of the clouds looks like. I don't have eyes to see it. Same thing with an atheist with all that is in the earth. They don't have eyes to see it, so they don't see it. And they can't see it because they're spiritually blind. Because their eyes have been opened up and they see the handiwork of God everywhere and in everything. Spurgeon said this, Unable, regarding this passage, unable to express the glory of God, the psalmist utters a note of exclamation. O God, our Lord. And we need not wonder at this, for no heart can measure, no tongue can utter the half of the greatness of God. The whole creation is full of his glory and radiant with the excellency of his power. His goodness and his wisdom are manifested on every hand. The countless myriads of terrestrial beings, from man, the head, to the creeping worm at the foot, all are supported and nourished by the divine bounty. The solid fabric of the universe leans upon his eternal arm. Universally, he is present, and everywhere is his name excellent. God is at work ever and everywhere, close quote. This applies not just to the name of God, but to his very person, his power, his glory, his majesty. He is to be praised throughout all of the earth because of who he is. And the reasons now are given in verses 2 through 8. And I want you to notice that there are two things that are contrasted here. One thing is something rather small and weak and helpless, and the other thing is something that is quite large and quite majestic. First is the small, weak, and helpless thing in verse 2. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. What is he talking about? He gives, a, he gives a very simple, small, weak, and helpless type of an example to demonstrate just how majestic God's name is. Even in the mouth of a nursing babe, God is praised. And how is God praised in the mouth of a nursing babe? God is praised in the mouth of a nursing babe. And, and, and if you're a parent, if you've ever seen childbirth, you understand what this is like. If you've ever seen childbirth, you never want to see it again. But if you've ever seen childbirth and, and watch this happen, you know what this is like. That baby is born right at the perfect time when it is hungry and it is able to suckle somehow. A miracle of evolution. It is able to suckle and its mother is able to provide exactly what that baby needs and exactly that is. So God has provided in that baby an instinct to feed and a hunger to feed at that moment. Of course, if you had to eat for nine months, you would be hungry too. But the baby is able to eat right at that moment, and it needs a certain nourishment. And the nourishment that God has provided through its mother is perfect for that baby right at that moment. Splendorous, isn't it? Look at that, you say the wisdom and the power and the magnificence and the grace of God in display in a little baby. A weak and helpless thing. So much so that the display of that majesty and that glory and that power of God is enough to shut up his enemies. In verse 2. To silence the adversary. To make the enemy and the revengeful cease. That display of power is enough that all the enemies of God should shut their mouths and still themselves and bow down before him. Because that display of God's wisdom and magnificence and his majesty, that should terrify an unbeliever. But of course it doesn't. Because they're blind to the truth. Then he gives an example of something that is big. Verse 3. When I consider your heavens, and the works of your hands, 
The works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, and the shoes of ordained. That David goes from gazing upon a newborn infant and the majesty and the wisdom and the glory of God that is displayed to them, that he lifts his eyes to the heavens and he sees the majesty of the heavens above him. Now David did not have the benefit that we have of our modern day telescopes and infrared imaging and all the other stuff that we know of. We send probes off into space and get to the outer reaches of our own solar system and we look out beyond where we've never been able to look before. We take high resolution photographs and all kinds of different light spectrums and we see what's going on beyond the far reaches of our own universe. How vast is it? And, and David was able to appreciate that just to look up out of the desert in the land of Israel at night and to see the splendor of those stars and he knew this is enormous. This is massive. This is beyond anything I can even comprehend. And, and we know even far more than David. I think the Earth is a big, a big spot. I think our planet is big. It's home to seven billion people. And you can climb up on top of a mountaintop in any one of the regions around here, and you can look 360 degrees all the way around you, and you see the mountains in the distance, and you look on for what feels like forever. There's great, great vistas and great views that we have. And yet, if you zoom out, you realize that everything you can see from the top of that mountaintop is just a tiny little dot on a map of this country. And it's even smaller on a map of our world. <laughs> a tiny little bit. And, and our Earth isn't that big. You know it's not even the biggest planet in our solar system. Our Earth is dwarfed by our sun, which is 1,300,000 times larger than our Earth. That's incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. It's incomprehensible. And our sun is not all that great shapes. Our sun is really not that big compared to other stars even in our own Milky Way galaxy. There are suns and stars out there that dwarf our own sun by comparison. There are stars and suns out there that are millions of times larger than our sun. The enormity of that is, is incomprehensible. Our little ball of dirt rotates around and revolves around the sun at 93 million miles out. That is a distance that is unfathomable to me. Again, we throw these numbers out as if they mean something and we can kind of grasp them, but we really don't even understand what that is like, 93 million miles. And our Earth is pretty close to our sun, because Pluto, which I still think is a planet, you all know that, Pluto is 3.6 billion, with a B, billion miles away from our sun. The ray of light that traveling 286,000 miles per second that leaves our sun takes nine minutes to get to Earth. It takes 13 hours to reach Pluto. And that's, that's just our own solar system. Our own solar system is just a little tiny speck in the Milky Way galaxy. And there are a billion other stars like our sun in this Milky Way galaxy. And this galaxy, the Milky Way, it's 100,000 light years across. The beam of light that leaves our sun would travel 100,000 years before it would reach the other side of the Milky Way galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy is only one of at least a billion other galaxies just like it. And the nearest galaxy to ours is 2.5 million light years away. And that's just the universe we own. From our vantage point in the Milky Way, we can only see a small portion of the known universe. We can't even see all that there is. Does that not bother you, Mark? Do you feel small? You should. Look at verse 4. And what is man that you say thought of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? This is magnificent, of it. We look at that and we think, we are just, we are just a speck of dirt, on a speck of dirt, rotating around in a ball gas, and we're only a speck in a rather medium-sized galaxy, and our galaxy is only a speck in the known universe. 
would be helpful. What is vain? God's life would be That's true, and yet, on this terrestrial ball, God is working out his plan of redemption. This is the center stage of all of creation, this earth. What is man that God cares about him? Who, who are we that he would be concerned to provide for our needs, to sanctify us, to send his son to save us, to love us, to make a covenant with us, to, to make us and this planet the stage upon which he works out his redemptive plan so that he can be glorified amongst his people and by the angels for all of eternity. What are we? And how is it that God is mindful of us? You see how overwhelmed David is by this? How small we are? And then you consider that God in verse 5 has made men a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty, and you say, hold on a second, I read God has made him a little lower than God. Not the angels, but back in Hebrews it said, God has made him a little lower than the angels. But Psalm 8 says, you've made him a little lower than God. What's going on there with lots of different translations? That's what we'll do with next week. We're just going to skip over it for today. But it is somewhat significant. You've made him a little lower than God, and you've crowned him with glory and majesty. Now, David wants to recount all of the ways in which God has, has demonstrated his goodness to men. And it has to do with God giving to man dominion over all of his creation. Now, if we talk about the scope of this known universe, the fact that on this earth, God is working out his plan of redemption so that he can be glorified. This is the stage upon which he is working in all of human history. He is not just somewhat concerned. He is intimately concerned in all of the details of all of human history, in all of our lives. He is right here. He is working them out by his providence. And that should just stun us. And Spurgeon said something like this concerning this passage. If this world upon which we live were to dissolve and go into nothingness, it would not diminish the glory of the universe any more than a single leaf falling in a forest would diminish the glory of the forest. And yet this is where that was a work. Is that not us? It ought to us. What has God done to a man that, that awed David so much it has to do with God giving him uh, dominion? Look at how God's concern is, is described in verses 5 and 6 and 7. You have made him a little lower than, he, than God. I almost said angels there, but come back to Hebrews chapter 2. You made him a little lower than God, and you crowned him with glory and majesty. You made him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. I should remind you of Genesis chapter 1. God placing man in the, in the garden and saying, You shall have dominion. That man is the highest of God's creation. He is over the birds, he is over the animals. There's no similarity between chimpanzees and apes and man. You know why? Because the chimpanzees don't have us in cages looking at us. We have them in cages and we look at them. We are a higher order of being. They're, they're animals and they're, they're not infinitely lower, but they are much lower than we are. We, mankind, is the highest of God's creation. We bear the image of God. That was God's intention. We are rational, we are creative, we are spiritual beings. We have a capacity through regeneration to be in relationship with God, a capacity which He has granted to us and He gives us eternal life. We can be in communion with Him. Our ability to create, our ability to think and to reason and to be rational, our emotions, our sense of justice and righteousness and rightness, all of these things are remnants of the image of God in us. And God has created men to rule over the works of His hands. This is what the psalm says. Now back in Hebrews chapter 2, the author quotes this passage of the psalm, God has given dominion to mankind, but then the author says, 
though God has given made all things subject to him, that is mankind, we do not yet see all things subject to him. And this is what this is the cause of great perplexity for us. Perplexing if that's the way I use that word wrong. This is the we're in a new facility, but I'm still going to use words that I just make up on the spot. <laughs> this is this is a cause of great frustration to us. That God has created us to rule, but we don't rule, do we? We don't rule creation like we should. We don't rule creation like we were created to rule creation. Creation sometimes rules us. Tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, natural disasters, earthquakes, disease, pestilence, predators, and death. We hear all those things, don't we? That should be how it is. We should rule over the works of God's hands. That is what he created us to do. But that is not, in fact, what humanity's experience is like. We, we don't, in fact, rule in that way. What has gone wrong? There is this, this lowliness of man in the scheme of all creation, yet we have been given this great status of being the highest of God's creatures and being created to rule over the works of his hands. But we don't rule over the works of his hands. Something has gone wrong. What is it? It's sin. This has destroyed it. It's destroyed the world. This has ruined it. Death, disease, destruction, famine, all these things that plague us. It's the result of the curse of God upon a sin-cursed and fallen world. It is the first Adam rebelled against God in the garden and plunged all of his race into rebellion. You want to know what's wrong with creation? We are. This is ironic, isn't it? We're the highest of God's creations. God is mindful of us in this whole scope of what we deserve the wrath of God. Now, some of you may say, well, look, it's not me. Other people may be. Other people are what's wrong with creation. I mean, I see them. They drive by me. They cut me off. They step in front of me in the line. It's other people that are wrong with this creation. Other people have ruined this perfectly good universe. But not me. Are you really going to suggest that you don't need forgiveness? That you don't need redemption? That you don't need a savior? Are you really going to suggest that you don't deserve the justice of God? Your sin? One sin. One sin. Against an infinitely wise and benevolent and gracious and loving creator is enough to deserve all of the wrath and punishment of an eternal God. Forever, never, never. One sin is enough. Because he is so benevolent and he is so good. He is concerned about us and yet we have rebelled against him. All of humanity has done this. All of humanity in Adam has fallen. What's wrong with this creation? We are wrong with this creation. Right? Every liar deserves his part, his part in the lake of eternal fire. Forever and ever, the eternal lake of fire. Every liar deserves it. <clears throat> if you're lusted after something that didn't belong to you, or someone who didn't belong to you, you deserve hell. Blasphemy, or pride, or rebellion, or disobedience. He created us to bear his image, and what type of an image have you borne in your sin before that holy God? How have you displayed his image before a watching world? Have you communicated by, by being an image bearer? Have you communicated that God himself is a lying, thieving, stealing, blasphemous, adulterer, lustful, a covetous fornicator like you are? Like I am? In our heart? That's the type of image that we have displayed to the world. We should be damned just because we have not displayed the image of God in us as we should. We are what is wrong with creation. Let's just assume for a moment that you have only committed five sins a day. Since the age of 15. Since you were 15 years old. Five sins a day. That would be roughly 1,900 sins a year. From the age of 15 to the age of 20, you would have sinned 9,125 times. By the time you were 25, you would have sinned 18,250 times. 
If you're 40 years old and you've committed five sins a day for your life, just since the age of 15, you've not counted all this stuff before. I had heaps of it before, but let's just count 15 on. If you're 40 years old today, you have a rap sheet that contains 45,000 plus crimes against the Holy God. And let's be honest, five times a day. That's, that's before we're done with the first cup of coffee. Let's just say, let's just say for the sake of argument, it was only five times a day. That's a big rap sheet, isn't it? Are you really going to suggest that you're not what's wrong with the world? That we're not what's wrong with the world? That you don't deserve justice? What should God do with you on the day of judgment? Take you to heaven or send you to hell? Not what do you want him to do, what should he do? He should send you to hell. Now, a lot of students will say, well, no, no, I, I, think God is, I think God is loving you, so he's going to take you to heaven. When a judge does not give to evildoers what they deserve, do you call that loving? When a judge just says to a murdering rapist, you know what, because I'm a loving guy, I'm just going to let you go. No punishment, no penalty, I'm just going to let you go. You look at a judge like that and think, that's loving. <laughs> or is there something in you which is the image of God, a sense of justice, that says, I do not like when guilty criminals go free. A lot of sinners are counting on the goodness of God to deliver them on the day of judgment. And it is the goodness of God that is going to damn them on the day of judgment, because a good God will do what is good and right and just. He will punish guilty sinners. And we will praise him for his goodness in doing so. But because God is good, he has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity. He is God of human flesh. He stepped into history. He lived a perfect life. And he never sinned. He provided a sinless sacrifice. All the spotless lambs of the Old Testament, they looked forward to and anticipated that great sacrifice. He lived a life of perfect sinlessness. So that the death that he could die could be a substitutionary death. So that he could die in the place of sinners. As a perfectly sinless substitute for sinners. And so in salvation and in the gospel, God provides for me two things. Forgiveness for my sins and righteousness. It's not just that my sins are washed away, but that he gives to us in Christ a perfect righteousness. A righteousness that is spotless and blameless and perfect and eternal. And it belongs to somebody else. So that in him we can be counted not just as forgiven, but blameless before him, not because of anything we do, not because we have stopped sinning, not because of our, uh, the amount of our belief, not because of anything special that we have generated, or the merits of our own faith. We are counted righteous before him because of what was done by another, namely Jesus Christ. So the forgiveness that we have, he has provided because all our sin can be laid upon him and all his righteousness can be credited to our account. So that we can stand before God because of what Christ has done, not just forgiven, but righteous. We need righteousness. That is what the gospel provides. Not just forgiveness, but an infinite and perfect righteousness. What does God demand of you to receive that gift of eternal life? Repentance and faith. Hold of these are the work of God in your heart. God demands that you turn from your sin and acknowledge, I don't deserve eternal life. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve it in fullness. I deserve it forever because of my sin, my iniquity. And it's not just against others that I have sinned, it is against God himself I have sinned. And even one sin should damn me and I have a keeping, helping sin over my entire life. 
the sin that merits the justice of God, that deserves the justice of God. You have to acknowledge that. You have to turn from that sin, and faith is turning to Christ. Repentance is turning from sin. Faith is turning to Christ. It's the one action. It's one thing. It's believing faith. It's a faithful believing. And a repentant faith and a, and a faithful repentance. It is, a, it is an act of turning from sin and iniquity and, and what is damned me and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ and believing that his death on the cross for me was sufficient and has paid the price for my sin. And that in that act of believing, God is faithful. He will forgive you of your sin. He will cleanse you of your unrighteousness. He will give you a new conscience. He will give you a new heart, new affections, and eternal life. And he will take you to heaven and be with him. What are we? God would do all of this. Psalm If he were just simply to make all of us dissolve and disappear, he would have done no injustice. He would have done nothing unkind. He would have done nothing wrong. He could do that. But instead, he came here. And he is displaying before a watching world his plan of redemption. Redeeming sinners so that they can glorify him by just forgiving their sins and giving them life. <coughs> You're sitting here today and you have never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation by repentance and faith. I beg of you this morning. Do not delay. You will either meet Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you will face him as your judge. Do not neglect so great a salvation. You will not escape. I promise you that. Christ promises even now to receive all and any who will come to him in faith. He will not turn you away. He has promised that in John 6. All who come to him believing, he will grant eternal life, he will receive them, and he will not cast you out. Come to Christ, repentance and faith today. Believe upon him, and your sins forgiven. So that God be glorified in giving you the righteousness that you do not deserve. Let us pray again. Father, we pray to you and glorify you for such a great provision for our salvation. The greatest way that we can honor you here today is to acknowledge that great work of salvation that we celebrate each and every Sunday as we gather together as your people. It is our desire that you would be pleased to draw sinners to yourself, to open their hearts that they may respond to the gospel, open their eyes that they may see in Christ the forgiveness that they need and the righteousness that they need. And then we pray, Father, that you would grant to sinners repentance and faith that they may come to Christ and be received by him and welcomed into his eternal kingdom. Be honored and glorified this morning, we pray, through our prayer, our praise, and our repentance. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.